Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and are you excited? I'm excited. It's like 2018 all over again. Brexit news is happening, but it's all happening after we recorded the pod, so you'll have to find somewhere else to find out if you can get through the green zone or the red lane or whatever it might be. Coming up on the pod, though, we've got the Nigerian elections. They're absolutely massive, these. It's the biggest economy in Africa. It's on course to become the third most populous country on the planet. And Nigerians make up the third largest group of foreign nationals in the UK, uh, mainly keeping the NHS afloat, it has to be said. So we take a deep dive into the Nigerian elections, what it means for Nigerians, for Africa and the rest of the world. Columnist panel coming up in just a moment with Giles Cohen and Rachel Sylvester. But we've got the sad news today of the death of Betty Boothroyd. Oh, oh, Dad, it's a couple of savers. I'm sick and tired of hearing you shout out. Order. There was a great deal of pressure last Thursday upon the leader of the House to bring the Prime Minister to the dispatch box today and the leader of the opposition for this important debate. I want to hear that debate in silence. Prime Minister. The formidable force of Betty Boothroyd there, the first woman to be elected Speaker of the House of Commons, who's died at the age of 93. Here to pay tribute to her now, the current Commons Speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle. Afternoon, Lindsay. Hi, how are you? Matt? It's good to have you with us. Your your reflections, your memories of, of Betty Boothroyd. Great. Look, she was a, na- a national institution, you know. She was an outstanding speaker. She t- took no prisoners. She was strong, decisive, and everybody had respect for her. I was a new MP who came in, in awe of this woman from Yorkshire, the first ever woman speaker. But it wasn't because she wanted. She was strong, she was capable, so competent. And she didn't take prisoners, but she held the respect of the House. 
Um, do you, did you, how do you think she managed to do that? Being the first, you know, the long, long history of, of common speakers, being the first uh, woman, um, she, she, do you think she had to work harder to win over the respect of the House? I mean, she clearly did by the end because nobody wanted to get on the wrong side of her. <laughs> Not including journalists, as, as, as we know. She was really well strong. And, and, and in fairness, you know, she had been a deputy speaker under Bernard Wetherill. So what she had done, she'd earned her spurs sitting in that chair, and then when she went for it, the House got behind her. And, of course, what what it was, it was a Conservative government that brought her in, and she was a former Labour Member of Parliament with a great history to the Labour Party. But she was able to stand aside, be neutral, be firm, be strong, and hold respect of all sides of the House. And that's what she achieved. Now, we should reflect, obviously, she was from Yorkshire, you're from Lancashire. Uh, you were a new MP in 97, midway through her, her time as Speaker. Were you ever told off by her? No, I, I was very lucky, actually. I, um, if she was, I don't remember it. But I've got to say, it was always about the Northern voices standing together. You're right, the Lancashire-Yorkshire rivalry would always be there, but we'd always unite against the South. And Betty was always good. She'd ring me up and say, um, lovey. Uh, just to let you know, you're doing a good job, but it was always the but I had to wait for. And she could be still giving me advice. And I've got to say, I was always pleased to see her, pleased to meet up with her, because she was a great supporter. She turned up on the night to see who the next speaker was. She came to support me, and she was there, and she watched it through. I've got to say, I've lost a great friend, but the country's lost a national institution. What was the advice she used to give you when she said you're doing a great job, but what did she, what did she say you ought to be doing? <laughs> she, always, she used to check what I used to wear. I think you could wear a little bit more uh, of the tradition, oh. was always the one. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, she was very good on that. Uh, then she'd say, you're right, just throw one or two out. Serve you good. I used to do it. She said, it puts them in the place. Don't take any nonsense. Stand up to them. Don't, don't let them shout. Throw one out and the rest will be quiet. She was always good. Don't hesitate, she said. It's just not worth worrying about it. Just get on with it. That's interesting. I mean, you have thrown a few out in, in recent times, Lindsay. Is that because Betty was egging you on? <laughs> not so much egging me on, but she's just giving me some strong advice to say, look, hold discipline. You've got to control the house. The only way to control it is to make sure they understand that you mean it when you say it. Uh, finally, how will you remember her and how do you think the Commons will remember Betty Boothwood? They'll remember as a very strong speaker, a speaker that, you know, was there for all. And, and I've got to say, she enjoyed the job. She loved the job. She was so popular as well. You know, and, and, and it's the fact that, she, don't forget, she took Maastricht as well. There was lots of things she was involved with. That was around at the time when she was in the chair's deputy. She, she was there when she came in. As I say, she was elected in 92, and she stayed in the chair till... Uh, nearly the end of 2000. So she saw a lot. She saw the end of the Conservative government and the beginning of a new Labour government. You know, she reigned over all of that. Yeah. But the one thing she did do is earn the respect of every Prime Minister, and that's what matters. Common Speaker Lindsay Hoyle there, remembering Betty Boothwater. And I actually interviewed Betty a couple of years ago where we were taking a look at the history of PMQs. And this is when she reflected on how it wasn't as good as it was in her day. When I speak, and I spent all my recesses accepting invitations all over the world. I spoke in loads of parliaments in the world. And we were the envy, Prime Minister's question time was the envy of different parts of the of various parliaments in the world. They thought it was wonderful, and it, it really is. But I'm, I think it has deteriorated a great deal in the last few years.
it just has. It's not uh, the it's not the quality that it that it used to be. There is, and in fact, the speaker quite rightly only a few few weeks ago. He had to call the Prime Minister to account. He had to say, look, he's contempt of Parliament. You're not answering the questions, not even attempting to answer the questions. It, I'm afraid that it has deteriorated and that, and it, it, it really has to be brought back to probably proper, proper question time. So when you first became an MP, uh, Ted Heath was still uh, Prime Minister. Then you had Howard Wilson, Jim Callaghan, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, oh, yeah. Tony still Blair, Gordon Brown. <laughs> Over the years, who's the best person you've seen uh, doing PMQs from the dispatch box? The best person at the dispatch box? Oh, I can't tell you that. I really don't know. They were all of them good in their own ways, you know, all of them different personalities. But they all had a go at it. They all respected the parliamentary system. This is the point. And, you know, it, it, we, we, it, it, the, the, the parliament, Prime Minister's questions lies at the heart of the British political system. And they understood that. And it's about time we got back to that and, and cherished it and developed it and re- didn't abuse it as it has been abused, I think, at the present time. I don't think there's quite the, the interest in Prime Minister's questions that there used to be. There used to be queues of people. I don't know whether people watch it on television these days. I don't know. It gives me goose pimples sometimes, as I say. I get so worried about it. But, uh, no, uh, well, they're all different personalities, those who stand at the dispatch box. They all do it in their own way. But there mustn't be an abuse of the system, which I believe there is at the present time. Yeah, and focus, focusing on uh, answering those questions and not the toadying, uh, the toadying backbench uh, questions. But do you, do you still watch it every week, Betty? Oh, I don't watch it every week. I forget about it sometimes. No, I, I watch a lot of uh, the parliament on uh, parliamentary system uh, on television. I don't watch. I watch it every week. I try to. Um, as I say, I just uh, when I watch it, I think oh, we should be done better. You know, let's try harder. <laughs> <laughs> Betty Boothroyd, there, the former Common Speaker, the first woman to be Common Speaker, uh, who has died at the age of ninety-three. Now on the Red Box Podcast, it's time for this: the columnists on Times Radio. Yes, we are joined in the studio as ever by Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Uh, no Libby Purvis today, so the role of Libby Purvis will be played by Giles Coleman. Morning, Giles. I hadn't realised that I was having to be Libby Purvis. Excellent. Libby doesn't really approve of me. She always tells me, like, oh, Giles, will you wind it in, she always says. So I'll try and be more like that. If you could, well, just, just wind, yes, you could have an argument with yourself. That'll work, that'll work. Yeah. Now, a huge, exciting day. Everyone's on the edge of their seats. Brexit. Is back. It's like 2018 all over again. Are you excited, Rachel? It's Groundhog Day, isn't it? Yeah. And I think what's so uh, fascinating is actually Rishi Sunak is stronger than he thinks because the voters are so fed up with this whole thing. They they sort of think Brexit's already happened. They definitely don't want to go over the whole Northern Ireland protocol again, which, of course, Boris Johnson himself signed. So yeah. they don't want any more of the sort of European research group Boris Johnson moaning. So I think if Rishi Sunak faces them down... A, he could win in the House of Commons because he'd have Labour support. But actually, I think even within the Tory party, he'd probably win and he could see them off. And it could be the making of him that if he, you know, stands up to Boris Johnson and wins, he shows who's the boss and it isn't Boris Johnson anymore. What about you, Giles? Are you excited? We've got the gazebos going up on College Green. The skycopter is up. The king's being wheeled out. Are you excited? Uh, do you know, I, you know, I, the thing is, my massive problem is I didn't really care much the first time around. I, and I still don't really understand it. And what, what I'm hoping that will come of this is that I'll finally understand 
what the Northern Ireland Protocol is and what the uh, you know, all those bits of terminologies. I switched out of Northern Ireland in about 1978 because it was so complicated. Uh, and one of the main reasons I've come on is to hear you and Rachel tell me why I should care. <laughs> I think, to be honest, you are sort of at the point where if you haven't bothered finding out by now, you're very, very close and never needed to. It's like the day I didn't bother <laughs> finding out what the Swire Amendment was. There was a whole day when everyone was oh, very excited you're... about the Swire Amendment. It's I the didn't, day I never learned matter. long division at school. Yeah. And you now don't need to because you have a calculator. Yeah. Oh, was yours long division? Mine was Anglo-Saxon Shawforts. I, <laughs> I had like two days I was ill in 1978 and they did it. And I, I'm still, I'm worried that I'll, ha- I'll come on this show and Matt will say, so Giles, the Anglo-Saxon Shawforts. And I'll go, oh no. I get caught up yeah. by long division because uh, my one... children have to do it. And then... Well, I think the, point, <laughs> the, the key point, Giles, is that Anglo-Saxon Shawforts will be under EU rules if they're in Northern Ireland. But they, will, <laughs> they won't be. And Boris Johnson will definitely be cross in about fact, it if there's yeah. a leadership yeah. potential. And indeed, mo- most of the Tory party will be thinking that what Rishi be doing is putting up Anglo-Saxon shawforts <laughs> in order to stop, what is it, produce coming in from Ireland without having a passport or whatever it is. I confess, I don't actually know what a shawfort is either. <laughs> is it a building? I, well, you don't know. I don't, know, question, don't, know I think, I, I don't ask me, no. Ask Mr Corbett, who may or may not still be alive, my old history teacher. I tell you what, former Times editor James Harding was at school with me in that class and was there for that, which is probably why he went on to become head of news. <laughs> I think it's the small things. I think it's just a... It is. The small, it's the little stuff. I think it. people talk about privilege, white privilege, private schools. If you weren't there, you can't take advantage. You end up on the slag heap like me. I think it's just a fort built on the shore to stop Vikings coming is what I'm going to guess. Yeah. But I just, just don't yeah. quote me. It is a fort on the shore. It is a fort on the shore. Um, yeah. uh, Rachel, if we... Uh, if it goes the opposite way to what you're suggesting, if the DUP do kick off, if Boris Johnson galvanises a couple of dozen Tory MPs, this could get really rocky for Richard Sunak. Well, a couple of dozen Tory MPs. I still think if he could still win a vote, vote, and it wouldn't be comfortable for him to be reliant on Labour and Keir Starmer. But I think there's no doubt which side the voters would be on in that argument. Um, And I think everyone just wants this sorted now. There's economic reasons for that, the sort of political reasons, constitutional reasons. And I think always in politics, it's the judgment is who seems most reasonable here. And at the moment, the Brexiteers just don't seem as if they're being reasonable. And it was different in 2019 because the voters then were thinking, you know, it's the, the... pro-European Tories who were seeming unreasonable and reactionary. And also the big difference between then and now is the DUP mattered in Westminster politics in 2018, 2019, because the Conservatives didn't have a majority with that. Today they don't. They do matter into whether or not they go into the... they do in terms of the Assembly. The the Assembly. But But there must... I mean, I also want to... There must come a point where the DUP refute... One of the reasons... I mean, the DUP say that they won't go into Stormont again because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's also because for the first time they got to play second fiddle to Sinn Féin. Yeah, it's back to the sort of reasonableness yeah. test. And I think when it's about where the balance of public opinion is. And I think the balance of public opinion now in Northern Ireland and in the rest of the UK is just get this done. This yeah, is yeah. a reasonable compromise. The EU have obviously budged on quite a lot of significant things. There are a couple of things that the sort of hardline Eurosceptics don't like, but always in a, a negotiation, yeah. there's got to be bits that... Both sides and it depends like. if you focus on the bits you don't like or the bits you do. Exactly. Well, let, let's move on because the adrenaline, the adrenaline rush continues. Keir Starmer's <laughs> been making a speech on the economy. <laughs> let's take a listen. We've heard loud and clear about the need for certainty. That basic truth, chaos has a cost. That investors need a clear framework with policies that are always fully costed 
Fiscal rules sound and followed rigorously. Constraints accepted. Institutions respected and not bypassed. A rock of economic stability. Our entire mission for growth is built on that. And, and don't doubt it for a second. Your spine tingling, Giles? Yes. I mean, yeah, I, 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 would, I just wish he'd blow his nose and then I would, uh, <laughs> I would listen very happily. I, it's, I, I mean, I don't, I, this is my... I mean, when you say this thing is the columnist, it's usually a different sort of columnist, isn't it? And I, and I just don't really uh, hit hard on these big subjects. I tried to think what Libby would think. I think Libby would probably say that we've had enough exciting politicians and it's time to have somebody sensible, isn't it? I, that think, is, I think you're absolutely back on. <laughs> I think you're completely back on. <laughs> we could have just said it was Libby and you just she just needed to blow her nose yeah. and you could have just said it all anyway. Um, uh, Rachel, he's sort of fleshing out all this stuff that, you know, he wants us to be the fastest growing economy in the G7. Um, uh, I mean, it's the most clear cut of his five missions he unveiled uh, last week. There is still the... I mean, I suppose there is always that tension. Do we want... Is it possible to be an exciting, um, inspirational politician who isn't Boris Johnson? Well, I think the the thing about this speech is Labour's Achilles heel has always been economic competence and it's, see, it's not trusted by the voters to run the finances. Um, that all flipped over when Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng did their disastrous mini-budget and then suddenly the Tories looked like the reckless yeah. ones. So I think that's what Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves as well, the Shadow Chancellor, are trying to build on. That sense that actually if you want trusted, stable finances, you can turn to Labour, who who were seen under Jeremy Corbyn as the sort of magic money tree, reckless, spendthrift. Uh, and in fact, losers. we saw uh, even in our focus group last week, uh, people who voted Conservative in 2019 now saying the vote Labour still talking about Labour will spend, spend, spend. Um, and that's, so they've that's got still, to still got cut that. through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I and mean, of course, the other big thing uh, in, la- in Labour politics over the weekend uh, was Luciana Berger has rejoined the Labour Party. She, a uh, Jewish MP who left at the height of the Corbyn anti Semitism uh, scandal. In fact, she was on uh, Times Radio yesterday speaking to Aisha Hazawika. And she was asked about the fact that Keir Starmer continued to support Jeremy Corbyn, even as he insisted the party didn't have a problem with anti Semitism. I could go out and knock on doors. Um, at a general election, whenever that was going to come um, and campaign for Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. But that, that was a very personal choice. And, you know, everyone, everyone made their own choices in terms of what they felt was right at the time. And it was also informed by their own experience and what they saw. Again, my experience was very different to others. I judge people by, by what, not what they've just, what they've said, but also by their actions. Um, Charles, what do you, you make of this? Do, and the, the specific criticism of Keir Starmer, not only did he serve in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, he was also pretty silent about the issue of anti-Semitism, actually unlike John McDonnell, Emily Thornberry, others who did speak out about it. Um, I, I think um, this, the key thing is probably to me is that Keir Starmer isn't an anti-Semite. So I think it is, he has nothing in his track record that would suggest he's an anti-Semite, which is the thing he doesn't have in common with, for example, Jeremy Corbyn. I think to constantly have at him over what he did uh when he was in the uh corbyn's position isn't really fair that that, that dominic lawson column at the brilliant dominic lawson column at the the weekend which was sort of he, his problem was Keir just seems to want to have power he's not answering these these consistencies it's like just wanting to have power is absolutely fine now you 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 can't <laughs> expect to have we haven't had a prime minister who was fully consistent really since margaret thatcher and they've all been just people who wanted to have power and i think he's entitled to do whatever it takes to get the power 
and I also personally think, and it's tricky because I'm on you as a Jew uh, and a centrist dad in the <laughs> conservative press. I actually don't. I think it was overblown, the anti-Semitism thing. I think it was used as a stick to beat Corbyn with. There were some anti-Semites in the party. There are some anti-Semites in the Tory party. I've always felt it, it was slightly overdone. And I don't think it was Keir's role to make a massive fuss about it and get thrown out of the uh, out of the Labour Party. I think it was perfectly OK for him to sit there. Uh, uh, to, to like a sort of like a the, the the wolf in sheep's clothing or the sheep in wolf's clothing and and wait for his moment and now to do the right thing and I'm sure Luciana Berger uh, is probably feels the same way that's why she's come back into the fold. Interesting, though, um, uh, Rachel. I looked up an interview that Luciana did. I think late 2020, where she said she'd finally spoken to Keir Starmer. She hadn't spoken to him for two years. He didn't contact her at any point mm. when she was in the party having these problems or after she left. Yeah, doesn't scream a man who thought that this was a big issue at the time. In, even though in his letter to her, he said uh, it was shameful that people didn't speak out when they should have done. Was that, that was him? So I don't agree with Giles, actually, that it wasn't an issue. I interviewed Luciana Berger at the time when she left the Labour Party and she'd had threats to her unborn child. She was heavily pregnant, eight months pregnant when we did the interview. She'd had, you know, death threats to her unborn child. She'd had repeated um, anti-Semitic attacks from Labour Party members, supporters of Jeremy Corbyn. It was absolutely appalling and terrifying what had happened to her. Um, And... I don't think anyone should stand by and tolerate that. Um, I think what, to be fair to Keir Starmer, since he's become leader, he has acted and he has dealt with it. Um, And he's thrown Jeremy Corbyn out. He's been absolutely, you know, there has been sort of zero tolerance on anti-Semitism. So you could say that while, you know, now he's got the power to do something, he has acted, which I think is probably why Luciana's come back. Um, But I, you know, from my point of view, he should have done more at the time. Absolutely. And probably in political terms, it will matter less come the next election. If, you know, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn won't be standing and we probably assume that Luciana Berger will be. Yeah, I think I think she ruled out standing against uh, Jeremy Corbyn. I think the Tories want to make Jeremy Corbyn a big stick to beat Keir Starmer with. And I think that's probably a mistake from their point of view, because I think the voters have moved on. They know he's not Jeremy Corbyn. Um, They know he's very different. He's defined himself against him in many ways, particularly by saying he can't be a Labour candidate. Um, So I think if they're, you know, hanging all their hopes on that, it's not going to work as a political strategy. Giles Cohen and Rachel Sylvester there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. You just need a subscription, which I know you've got, but tell your friends. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Nigeria decides. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, Africa's biggest economy is on the brink. Nigeria went to the polls over the weekend. Results are still coming in. But hopes of an orderly transition of power from the rule of its former president hang in the balance. And Nigeria is an extraordinary country. In less than three decades, it is expected to become the world's second most populous nation with some 400 million people. And yet, because of the economic and political unrest there, thousands leave every week, including for Britain, where Nigerians are the third largest foreign minority. And yet this election has been chaotic, dangerous and open to challenge. There have been claims of vote suppression, widespread failures of a new digital polling system and videos being posted on social media apparently showing intimidation of voters and even ballot boxes being stolen or upturned by armed gangs. the ballot box out. See them, look at them going. Look at them going. They are smuggled the ballot box out. Look at them. Look at them. Look at what is going on here. Well, this election is Nigeria's least predictable and potentially most consequential president election. As it reels from the economic and security crises we've seen under the eight-year leadership of President Buhari, who's now 80. The tightest set of elections since the end of military rule there in 1999. With Buhari stepping down after his maximum two terms, Nigeria has been energised by the prospect of a new leader, while an apparent surge of youth turnout has fuelled the surprise emergence of Peter Obi. He's the Labour Party anti-corruption outsider who's led in some polls. We'll get the latest now uh, from uh, Nigeria. We can speak to Richard Ashton, who's the Times' correspondent there. Richard, morning. Morning, Matt. Uh, just talk us through uh, the, the three... I know there were, uh, what, 18 altogether standing in this contest, but the, three, the three-way the three fight. Who are the main contenders? Yeah, main contenders are Bola Tanubu for the APC, which is the ruling party, which is the party of Buhari, as I say, has been in power for eight years. He's a former governor of Lagos, known as the godfather of the city, who has basically run it as his personal fiefdom since 1999 when he was when he became governor he is up against Atiku Abubakar who is the main opposition party candidate who's from the north of Nigeria a muslim who's expected to rack up huge numbers of votes in the north where where there are more voters than there are in the south and he's uh, taking his sixth sixth lunge at the top job and uh, the man who has shaken up the uh, campaign is Peter Obi, who uh, is representing the Labour Party. He's a former businessman and governor of a number of states in Nigeria. And he has uh, campaigned on a ticket uh, of anti-corruption and, and a promise to, to do Nigerian politics differently and has seems to have engaged huge numbers, particularly of young people, um, with an optimistic force that we're now, you know, as, as results trickling, trickle in, we're now seeing some of the evidence. Of. And what are the particular issues? Is it specifically corruption? Uh, are there other domestic issues in Nigeria that have, have fueled support for, for OB over the, the more establishment candidates? 
Well, in the last eight years, Nigeria has lurched from one crisis to the next. The economy now has youth unemployment at about 40%. Um, inflation, annual inflation is at about 20%. Every day, hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil, the main export of Nigeria, are, are pilfered by thieves. Um, meanwhile, what we all know is that the Boko Haram insurgency, which began in the northeast of the country about a decade ago, has been compounded by at least three more overlapping conflicts. 10,000 people died last year in conflict. Uh, and most recently, we've seen a botched attempt by the Central Bank of Nigeria to replace currency notes, the, the notes of its, uh, of its currency, the Naira, on the eve of, of, of the election, which has seen severe cash shortages, uh, huge queues at ATMs, and seems to have had an effect um, on the election and that people have found it very difficult to, to vote. So Obi has campaigned saying, look, something needs to change. Um, analysts are seeing this election really as one of Nigeria's last chances to, to pull itself back from the brink and, and to, to chart a different path. Um, so, yeah, it, it, as you said in your intro, it, it is clearly um, a huge election, possibly the most consequential since civil rule returned to the country uh, in 1999. Um, and we've—I uh, know it's partly because of the breakdown in the, the various uh, polling systems. The, the results are only just coming through, but we have heard in the last hour Lagos has declared for Obi, which is pretty remarkable, given that uh, Tanibu saw that as his sort of back, backyard. Absolutely, it is remarkable. Obi's won uh, Lagos according to provisional results. By just under 10,000 votes, he took 582,000, which actually, it's worth noting again, is a very low turnout. It's lower than we, we perhaps expected. Um, but nonetheless, is huge because Tanubu ran Lagos for two terms as governor, during which time he amassed a huge property portfolio. Um, He's currently being sued, accused of setting up a private company during that time to collect state taxes and using it as his personal cash cow. And he installed uh, protégés as governor um, after he stood down. It's his backyard. He lives here where I am in Lagos. And, um, you know, posters have adorned huge, you know, street corners all over the city. So the fact that people have come out in such numbers to, to, to vote against that is, is remarkable. It shows that what some might have written off as a, a social media online campaign by Peter Obi and, you know, media hype has actually converted into into success on the ground. I mean, there's been a lot of concern about the uh, the, the veracity of the election, given what we've seen, the, 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 the talk of intimidation, the uh, gangs turning up and interfering with ballot boxes. Let's just take a listen, because yesterday, uh, Aliliu Aldu, who's a youth spokesman for Tanubu's campaign, was on Times Radio and was asked if he was concerned the integrity of the election was at risk. Not really. I mean, uh, I think the violence happening in some, uh, just a few places, to be honest, really, and they're not as serious as they've been, you know, um, reported or um, described. It's, it's it's a pretty much, um, it's a big country and um, a bit of issues here and there, but overall, it, it has nothing on the integrity of, of the election or the umpire so far. 
Uh, I suppose he, he would say that to some extent, uh, Richard. You, I know you've been reporting on. There was extraordinary pictures of a of a road that was bulldozed. Uh, tell us what's going on there. Yeah, that's in Kogi State, which is uh, in the centre of the country. Um, and I think as much to do with local politics as national politics, the governor uh, ordered the bulldozing of some of the major roads in the state, um, which happened to lead to the town, um, the hometown of, of one of his opponents there. Um, his opponent's supporters have said it's a clear attempt to stop people voting for her, to stop um, electoral commission officials getting to the town. He says it's about security. He says bandits are operating in the state. And the only way he could ensure that there was a safe election would be to get rid of the roads so that these militants couldn't cause trouble. Uh, Richard, thank you for that. It's extraordinary. Uh, the, the picture which is emerging, Richard Ashton of the Times is correspondent in Nigeria. And we'll catch up with, I think, with Richard again tomorrow as uh, these uh, results emerge. Um, let's speak to some of the actual voters in uh, Nigeria now. We've got uh, three on the line, technology uh, permitting. Uh, Francesca da Costa Ajayi is in uh, Lagos in the southwest of the country, uh, where she runs a management consultancy. Morning, Francesca. Morning. Uh, good to have you uh, with us. Um, Desmond Mamajek Dumi is an environmentalist who's also in Lagos. Morning, Desmond. Good morning, and I'll forgive you for the stumbling on the name. Sometimes people just call it Majek. <laughs> I thought I'd at least have a go, Desmond, but I appreciate your wasn't generosity bad. this morning. No, uh, it wasn't, wasn't bad. Um, Francesca, uh, what's at stake in this election for you? The future of Nigeria. Um, the future of the youth in Nigeria, that is what is at stake. The economy is at stake. The general future of Nigeria is at stake with this, with this election. Uh, Desmond, how, how important is this election for you? It's a turning point. Um, j- just like, you know, generally I'm an environmentalist and humanity has actually reached a fork, you know, in, in, in our progress in life. You know, we have to take the right road. And in Nigeria, things tend to be quite exaggerated. And we're also at that fork. And it's a turning point. Definitely. No doubt about it whatsoever. And if, Desmond, if if Nigeria doesn't, I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying that it's essentially Obi or one of the established candidates. Is that is that what you're saying? And if it if Obi doesn't win and one of the establishment parties does, what does that mean for the future of Nigeria for you? Well, he doesn't necessarily have to win. It would certainly speed up the process. But if the Labour Party came in in force, and we're seeing some indications of that, you know, there are some areas where um, one or two of their candidates who hadn't even, you know, campaigned or anything uh, got straight into the House of Representatives and stuff. So, you know, the worst case scenario would be, um, the worst case of the good scenario would be that Labour gets, you know, well represented. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, the change has to come. It, 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 it just has to, you know, that's, that's just the way things are. And, you know, unfortunately, we've been treading on the same path for too long. Not just Nigeria, you know, all over the world, in different, in different areas of the world. We have been treading on the wrong path for too long. And there has yeah. to be a very, very dramatic change. As, um, you know, the King Charles said, you know, quite recently, we can't continue going down this road. We have to change. Uh, Francesca, I think you're still on the line. I mentioned your management, uh, consult- running a management uh, consultancy. How would you describe the state of the Nigerian economy? I mean, it's a huge country. Uh, it's the biggest economy in, in Africa. But for it to thrive, it needs political stability as well, doesn't it? 
It does. It, it does need political stability. Um, it goes without saying that the current state of the Nigerian economy right now is a misery for every single person. It's a misery for everyday Nigerians. It's a misery for us business owners. Um, you know, Nigeria has issues such as inflation in general, food inflation for the everyday man, you know, is at the highest 18% in some parts of the country. And, you know, according to Sears Insights, we've had a year-on-year year decrease in inflation, just a slight decrease, but it's still not good enough. Um, we've had GDP per capita improved by 1.3%, but it's still not good enough. And we need a government that's going to come in and put some firm policies in place to really turn the economy around. Well, we'll see how that uh, that pans out, I'm sure, in the, in the coming days. Really good to speak to you. Thanks. That's uh, Francesca uh, and Desmond, both in Lagos. Now then, and we're looking at the elections which have been taking place in Nigeria over the weekend. Uh, extraordinary uh, three-way race um, between two establishment parties and Peter Obi uh, from uh, the Labour Party uh, has emerged as, as one of the key front runners. Lots of people are saying this is a turning point uh, for Nigeria. But what does it mean for Africa more widely and for the rest of the world and Britain too? I'm joined in the studio now by Paul Arkwright, who was the British High Commissioner's Nigeria from 2015 till 2018. Morning, Paul. Good Morning. to see you. Uh, we've also got on the line uh, Dr. Lena Co- Coney Hoffman, an Associate Fellow of the Africa Programme, the Chatham House uh, Think Tank. Uh, good morning, Lena. Good morning. Good to have you uh, with us. Uh, Paul, just put into context why Nigeria is so important. I was, it was sort of struck me this morning, we speak a lot about our relationships with, yes, European countries, but America and Australia and even New Zealand. We don't talk very much about countries in Africa, despite them being huge, both in terms of population and, and the economy, and they don't, they don't come bigger than Nigeria. They don't come bigger than Nigeria. Um, it's the biggest economy in Africa. It's got the most number of people in Africa. Um, and a demographic that is um, only going in one direction. We think there'll probably be about 400 million Nigerians by the age, by the uh, year 2050. Um, And a statistic I um, was amazed by, but I'm told it's true, is that one baby in 10 that's born in 2050 will be a Nigerian. Um, Wow. So we have to take it into account. Um, uh, It's a massive country with great... Uh, links to the UK, a huge diaspora here, um, a trading partner. Uh, I think we can do much better on trade in the years to come. Um, and crucially, um, when it goes well, when it's stable and secure and prosperous, a force for good in West Africa and in the continent as a whole. And of course, the flip side of that is if things go wrong, and things have gone wrong in the last eight years, then um, there's a risk. There's a risk of Nigeria becoming a, um, a centre of instability and a risk of um, migration um, heading in yeah. Europe's direction. Lena, do you, uh, do you agree with that assessment? I mean, Paul said if it could become stable, secure and prosperous. Uh, but that's a big if, isn't it? And you've been looking for a long time at the, the history of corruption and instability in Nigeria. That's correct. It's a, a big if, and uh, the current election is a uh, um, kind of the debate on you know which direction Nigeria is going to go. Um, like Paul said, the last eight years have been particularly brutal, um, and we've talked about it across the program. The last eight years have been um, really, really um, 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 the amount of economic hardship that um, Nigerians have experienced. Um, we've talked about inflation and unemployment and um, the way in which insecurity in Nigeria is threatening uh, the stability of West Africa. So it's really, really important that in this election, 
um, the presidential election and as well the National Assembly election that's ongoing. We're, we're looking at the results coming in now that the government that comes into power determines, you know, what direction um, Nigeria is able to go to um, go in and um, that that government comes in with a huge amount of legitimacy to address the economic challenges it faces. You need legitimacy uh, um, and a significant amount of political capital to address corruption and, uh, uh, and insecurity. And in terms of, I've got the stats slightly wrong earlier, Paul. I said it was going to be the second most populous country. On, it's the uh, third, it yeah. will be the third after India and China. Yep. But the other stat that really leapt out to me was, as you were saying, the big diaspora. It's the third largest group of foreign nationals in the UK, people from Nigeria. And I suppose the point you were making is that if if Nigeria becomes increasingly unstable, then more of those young people will seek to move elsewhere. And that, that starts having an impact on its neighbours, but then than other countries as well, including Britain. Yes, and it's damaging, obviously, for Nigeria. Mm. I mean, um, the UK National Health Brain Service, Brain. Yeah. Um, for example, has benefited enormously from nurses and doctors, qualified nurses and doctors coming over to the UK. But what does that mean for the Nigerian uh, health service? It means that um, qualified people who are desperately needed there are, are not staying. So we need that stability, that economic stability. We need the security um, it's important that Nigerians stay in Nigeria to help the country, but they will only do so if they have a government which is stable, uh, which addresses the economic challenges which are uh, which Nigeria is facing at the moment. And we'll see what comes out of this election. Um, but change is absolutely necessary. Yeah. We have had, uh, frankly, a catastrophic eight years of uh, the Buhari government. Uh, and it has to change. Now, who comes in is another question. Yeah. The results are trickling through, as you know. But um, uh, there needs some um, immediate steps need to be taken on security, on economy, uh, on creating jobs. Uh, and I think everybody will be looking to that and hoping uh, that there will be a turn for the better in Nigeria in the next four years. Um, Lena, what do we know so far? Lots of excitement amongst young people, of which Paul was saying there, were lo- there are a lot of them in Nigeria. Has that fed through into turnout, as far as we can tell from the results we've got so far? In terms of the results we've got so far, I think uh, turnout is still uh, unclear. Um, For example, uh, and in some cases, um, there's reportedly lower turnout, for example, in Akiti State. Um, It was 59% in 2019. It's down to 32% uh, uh, this time around. I think it may be uh, urbanized states, uh, places like Lagos. Turnout might be um, higher, about the same as the last time round. But I think um, in some ways, the technology deployed by the Electoral Commission may um, have caused us to have lower numbers accredited at the polling stations. That's why we're not seeing as high numbers as we had last uh, uh, last time. Um, but I think the... Uh, we will see when the numbers, you know, more robust numbers uh, um, come through, um, you know, how many young people participated. We know there was a lot of pre-election participation among young, the young electorate in Nigeria. So I think we'll be able to break down the numbers uh, a bit better um, when we have more, more of the results coming through. And finally, Paul, you were the High Commissioner there 
in 2015 to 2018 when a certain amount of British politics and political bandwidth was occupied with other things. The other big story of the day today was obviously being uh, Brexit. D- does Britain have a role to play, given the, the huge number of Nigerians who are, who are here in the UK? Mm. Is there any role that Britain can play to try and help bring about the, the stability we're talking about? Because you've got, we you said, a huge country, resources, young people. If you can sort out the political stability, the economy could go absolutely gangbusters. Is there a role that Britain could or should be playing, do you think? Well, I think Britain has been playing a role. It's been playing a role in supporting the economy. It's been playing a role through humanitarian assistance for internally displaced people. Uh, The UK has been training Nigerian military to um, help fight Boko Haram in the northeast. Um, But with a more stable economy and a more secure country, Britain can do even more. And that's what I'm looking forward to. That's what the people I currently represent, my uh, clients uh, looking to invest in Nigeria are looking to. Uh, And we'll see what happens. But I'm optimistic. I think there will be a change for the better. Um, But it needs to come quickly. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs> 